National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the National Council of Catholic Men, presents The Holy Agony. mind to kill me, that he is helpless. He cannot kill me until I have done my work. And I have three days' work to do. If we enter this world of sacrifice as he enters the garden, then we need never fear the outcome. Why are we already won? Politics again will fail. Anonymous again will blunder. Foxes will be caught in their own trap. Schemers will be caught in their own schemes. But because these hundreds of thousands of thousand souls have been signed with the sign of the cross and sealed with the seal of salvation, because they have borne their cross in Christ in that hour, they will rise with Christ. This war to them is the sowing of a seed. Evil has its hour. But God will have his day. Episode 3 If it's a symbol, to hell with it. For the Feast of Corpus Christi. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. Corpus Domini nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuum vitam eternam. Amen. 
Corpus Domini nostri, Iesu Christi, custodio eterno, non tenuto in challenging for me and I just kind of had this vague awareness of the Eucharist and this idea you know you always genuflect at the altar out of respect of what it symbolized and it didn't really hit me until I already had come to the conclusion that I believed in God and I was pretty sure I believed in the church and I didn't really know what to do with that because I'd already gotten that far without really understanding what I even believed in. And somebody told me at some point that faith was a grace and that was helpful to me because it was, the idea was that it was something that you got from God and not something that you figured out for yourself. So I couldn't intellectualize it. And what I ended up doing was just going to a, an adoration chapel at a friary where some monks live that I just happened to find, you know, about 10 minutes away from me out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And I just, I kneeled in a pew there. And it was just as simple as asking God to help me understand it and believe in it. And as I sat there meditating, it was, you know, everything in the room started to become foggy and blurry and hinged kind of a violet color. And the, the only thing that was still clear was the sacrament and the monstrance, and that became brighter and brighter, and the rays of light kind of extended out of it and kind of cut through the fog. And it was, you know, it felt like a long time. It was probably only a couple minutes, but... But it was like, you know, very, very clear. And then I just, I believed what I saw. It was that simple for me.
if one wishes to do effective work in the social order, he must begin here. Believe me, when we train our eyes one hour a day to pierce that appearance of bread and find the Eucharistic Lord, we're prepared then to go out into the world and to see in every human being the image of God. Our eyes have been trained. This is the classroom of sociologists. This is the classroom of politicians. And then we're not... Scripture says, Speak, Lord, for thy servant giveth. He does not say, Scripture does not say, Listen, Lord, thy servant speaketh. We talk too much in prayer. The holy hour can be made any way you please. You put yourself under the spiritual Eucharistic cobalt. Good for the cancer of sleep. Expose yourself to atomic radiation of the Lord. the year 700 AD, a Basilian monk, wise in the ways of the world but not in the ways of faith, was having doubts about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And so one day as he was celebrating Mass for the people of the parish of Lanciano, as he raised the host in consecration, the host turned into flesh, living flesh. The wine turned into he turned to the people and confessed his doubts and told them of this wonderful God who loved him so much that he manifested himself in this miraculous form that not only that he could believe, but that they would believe. And the world spread. People came from all parts of Italy when they found out about their Lord. They knew they had a On another occasion, I was again in a church and had just knelt down before the Blessed Sacrament exposed in a monstrance when I experienced a very strange impression. You must, I feel sure, have observed that optical illusion which makes a bright spot against a dark background seem to expand and grow bigger. It was something of this 
sort that I experienced as I gazed at the host, its white shape standing out sharply, despite the candles on the altar, against the darkness of the choir. At least, that is what happened to begin with. Later on, as you shall hear, my experience assumed proportions which no physical analogy could express. I had then the impression, as I gazed at the host, that its surface was gradually spreading out like a spot of oil, but of course much more swiftly and luminously. At the beginning it seemed to me that I alone had noticed any change, and that it was taking place without awakening any desire or encountering any obstacle. But little by little, as the white orb grew and grew in space till it seemed to be drawing quite close to me, I heard a subdued sound, an immeasurable murmur, as when the rising tide extends its silver waves over the world of the algae, which tremble and dilate at its approach, or when the burning heather crackles as fire spreads over the heath. Those in the midst of a great sigh, suggestive both of an awakening and of a plaint, the flow of whiteness enveloped me, passed beyond me, overran everything. At the same time, everything, though drowned in this whiteness, preserved its own proper shape, its own autonomous movement, for the whiteness did not efface the features or change the nature of anything, but penetrated objects at the core of their being, at a level more profound even than their own life. It was as though a milky brightness were illuminating the universe from within, and everything were fashioned of the same kind of translucent flesh. So, through the mysterious expansion of the host, the whole world had become incandescent, had itself become like a single giant host. One would have said that, under the influence of this inner light which penetrated it, its fibers were stretched to, to breaking point, and all the energies within them were strained to the utmost. And I was thinking that already in this opening out of its activity, the cosmos had attained its plentitude when I became aware that a much more fundamental process was going on within it. From moment to moment, sparkling drops of pure metal were forming on the inner surface of things, and then falling into the heart of this profound light in which they vanished, and at the same time a certain amount of dross was being volatilized. A transformation was taking place in the domain of love, dilating, purifying, and gathering together every power to love which the universe contains. This I could realize the more easily, inasmuch as its influence was operative in me myself as well as in other things. The white glow was active. The whiteness was consuming all things from within themselves. It had penetrated through the channels of matter into the inmost depths of all hearts, and then had dilated them to breaking point, only in order to take back into itself the substance of their affections and passions. And now that it had established its hold on them, it was irresistibly pulling back towards its center all the waves that had spread outwards from it, laden now with the purest honey of all loves. And in actual fact, the immense host, having given life to everything and purified everything, was now slowly contracting, and the treasures it was drawing into itself were joyously pressed close together within its living light. When a wave recedes or a flame dies down, the area which has been covered for a moment by sea or fire is marked by the shining pools, the glowing embers which remain. 
in the same way as the host closed in on itself like a flower closing its petals, certain refractory elements in the universe remained behind, outside it, in the exterior darkness. There was indeed still something which lit them, but it was a heart of perverted light, corrosive, poisonous. These rebellious elements burned like torches or glowed red like embers. I heard then the Ave Virum being sung. The white host was enclosed once again in the golden monstrance. Around it, candles were burning, stabbing the darkness, and here and there, the sanctuary lamps threw out their crimson glow. Why has science been used by the Lord to prove what we Catholics have believed for 2,000 years in faith? When they tested this flesh, science found that this flesh was human flesh. This blood was human blood. And the blood type of the flesh and the blood is AB.
Yes, not only is that true, but the blood that you give and they put in the plastic bags, if we don't refrigerate that within one hour, it begins to break down and you have nothing but red liquid. They took a particle of the petrified blood and liquefied it during these tests. And they found that it had all the proteins and chemicals of freshly shed blood, 1,300 years old. Also during the test, when they tested the slice of the heart, rigor mortis had not set in. It was determined that the slice of the heart was a living heart. of the gospel, took bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Notice he said over the bread, this is my body. He did not say this represents my body, this symbolizes my body, this is a token of my body, but this is my body. Notice that he also said, given for you. Given on the cross. And then taking wine into his hands, the chalice, he said, drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament shed for many to the remission of sins. 
chalice of wine, he said. This is my blood. Not this represents, but it is. And as the old covenant or testament was ratified with blood, so now he ratifies, as he said, the New Testament with his blood. Did our Lord mean what he said? We believe it. broke into the church and they robbed, they stole the ciborium with the consecrated host. Three days later in a church nearby they found the consecrated host in a poor box that was dusty and full of cobwebs. So they brought them back to the church of St. Francis and tried to clean them as best they could but they decided it was best not to give them to the faithful so they thought they would leave them in the tabernacle for a period of time after which they would decompose and we believe the real presence of Jesus leaves when the host decomposes. The only problem we have is that it's been 258 years and they still have not decomposed. Finally, in 1922, 182 years after the fact, the church proclaimed that we had a miracle of the Eucharist. in our lives and so a procession is a sort of little a little sort of vision of what we should be doing in our Christian life which is carrying Jesus into the streets such a joy and miracles happened today there were people who joined the procession who were bystanders and I think many mustard seeds were sown in this area of central London that are so crowded with everything but God we're just standing still stand still and think okay what is this 
and that's that's a that's a good opportunity to to, to explain our faith to that and proclaim it. See, the march was amazing because we gave a testimony to Jesus while marching through the streets of London, and to see everyone else watching Jesus being taken and all of us being reverent. I love that we had the old English hymns and we had the Latin hymns um, to just sort of show the depth of faith and the, the long tradition and also that we started with the hymn by St Thomas Aquinas of course was sort of the, the, the moving force behind the institution of, of the Feast of Corpus Christi. It's one of those days when you know why you are a Catholic. You have absolutely no doubts whatsoever, doubts whatsoever, doubts whatsoever, doubts whatsoever. <laughs> decided to take a pilgrimage to Rome to pray before the tomb of St. Peter, his namesake, and St. Paul, the strength of our church. On the way to Rome, he stopped at a little town called Bolsena, and he asked if he could celebrate Mass at the chapel of St. Christina, one of the early martyrs of our church. When Peter came here the morning of the miracle, he did the only thing he knew how to do. He prayed. He prayed for the faith to believe that the gift he was given on the day of his ordination, the gift that we were given at the Last Supper, that Jesus truly came down during the consecration of the Mass was true. And so during the consecration of the Mass, Peter raised the host in consecration, said the words of consecration, and the host began to bleed.
twisted around the hose. It was bleeding so profusely that blood spilled from the hose, from the chalice, onto the steps and the stones that we see here. These stones were picked up and put in a special reliquary, which is there until this day. When you look at the painting of the priest, Peter of Prague, as he's leaving the altar, we notice that there's a teardrop in one of his eyes. We began to think about why he, he was crying. And one of the reasons we thought of was he was crying tears of joy because out of all the millions of people in the world, Jesus had heard his prayer and answered. Ostiam puram, 
Ustiem Sanctum, Ostiem Immaculatum, Panem Sanctum Vitae Eternit, Calicem Salutis Perpetuae. Supracoe propitio axare no votores pecere dignitis et acepta veri, si pri acepta veri dinatus es monera fuori di ustiabe, et sacrificium patrate nostri abre, quotidio apparizum sacerdos tuus mercis de exantum sacrificium immaculatum ostiam. Supplicius te rogamus, omnipotens Deus, iubeic preferi per manus sancti angeli tuus sublime altare tuum in conspectu divine maiestatis tui et corcut. This is kind of crazy, but I have my own Eucharistic miracle story. I used to be a heroin addict, like a genuine hardcore junkie. I started taking pills in high school, and then some bad things happened to me. And Lou Reed and Iggy Pop were my idols, so I always wanted to do heroin anyway. You know, one thing led to another. Anyway, I was pretty thoroughly strung out from the ages of 18 to 26. I had a failed stint in rehab and maybe a couple very brief periods of sobriety during that time, but for the most part, I was shooting dope into my veins on a daily basis for almost a decade. When I was 26, something weird started to happen to me. I had been a lapsed Catholic all my adult life. I didn't have any interest in that stuff, but by some freak accident, I read St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography, and it completely fucked my whole life up. The story of her life was the most shockingly true and beautiful thing I'd ever encountered, and my sudden awakening to this truth started making huge demands of me. I was just kind of instinctively aware that I had to reorient my entire life towards whatever it was that struck me as being so beautiful in her life. So I started to get more curious about the Catholic Church, wondered if maybe there was more to it than I had realized. I started reading all kinds of stuff, the Gospels, the lives of the saints, theology, apologetics. To make a long story short, I pretty quickly became convinced that there wasn't anything in the world more important than loving and serving God, and I was certain that I was going to become a nun. But in the meantime, I was still a junkie, and I was in a tumultuous relationship with an alcoholic, bipolar, sex-addicted poet. I stopped taking birth control pills. I wanted to be a good Catholic girl. I didn't want to have sex with anyone who wasn't my husband. Throwing the pills in the trash was pretty easy, but overcoming many years of habitual sin while I was also living with a totally debauched hedonist wasn't so easy. I did good for a while until I didn't, and that's how I got pregnant with my son. Like I said, during this whole bizarre spiritual journey of mine, I had been continuing to use heroin. So when I found out that I was pregnant, I was mortified. That's a pretty bad situation for all kinds of reasons. I knew I wasn't going to get an abortion, though. I had done that before, and that's what led me to drugs in the first place. I quit using the same day I found out. I had started listening to the local Catholic radio station shortly prior to this, and I suddenly remembered something I heard on there about local parishes that offered perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. I actually had no idea what that even meant, but in a sudden flash of desperate inspiration, I felt like I needed to find out and go. So I asked a priest about it, and he explained what it was to me, and said that it's sort of just like sunbathing. You just go and bask in the grace that emanates from the Blessed Sacrament. So it was probably the next night after I found out I was pregnant. I was going through withdrawal, and was in a really bad way, both physically and spiritually. I drove to this church that I heard had an adoration chapel. It was the middle of the night. 
Now, I didn't know this at the time, because I didn't know anything about this stuff, but adoration chapels are usually pretty carefully guarded. There's a sign-up sheet, and someone is always supposed to be present with Christ at all hours. And at this church in particular, there was a passcode on the door, and only people who had signed up were allowed to know it and enter. I didn't realize any of that until a couple years later. When I showed up that night, around 2 a.m., the door just opened for me, and there was no one else inside. So it was just me and Jesus, alone in the candlelight. I just fell on my knees before him and begged for help. It was the purest moment of annihilating humility I've ever experienced. I was strung out, wretched, six weeks pregnant, entrusted with the care of a completely pure and innocent creature made in God's image. I just wept and begged for his help. I was there for at least an hour, praying. I don't remember driving home or going to bed. But I woke up the next morning, and I wasn't dope sick, which should have been impossible. I should have been very, very sick. But I wasn't at all. And the weird thing is that it didn't feel surprising that I wasn't. It seems like I barely even noticed. It felt so natural. Because what it distinctly felt like was that my eight years of addiction had simply never happened. Like it was all a bad dream, just wiped clean, no trace. I never had a single physical withdrawal symptom. And even more remarkable, not a single psychological craving from that point on. I never dreamed about heroin, never thought about it ever again. If you've never experienced addiction, you have no idea how impossible and miraculous that is. Eight years. I tried quitting so many times, never got close. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that happened, and it changed my entire life. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, Water from Christ's eye, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Permit me not to be separated from you. From the wicked foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to you. That with your saints, I may praise you forever and ever.